0: everything. (laughs) i sorry. <laughs> Oh,
1: sorry, David just went that way to look for you. <laughs> oh, my God.
2: That's okay. <laughs> You're here, David's gonna be on the end.
0: Molly asked me to offer an opening prayer and the only prayer that I have is very—it's just four, four words. Thanks be to God, alleluia. Repeat after me, thanks be to God, alleluia. Um, a great honor and, and blessing that the deacon has us at the end of our service every Sunday is to dismiss the congregation with words that help us remember to take with us all the love and ideas about justice and the inspiration that fill our hearts during the worship service, take it forth into the world and embody it in the next seven days of the week. And that is, uh, recently we've been using the word alleluia at the end, even though in our world today it's a word that we might find we trip on because there are so many areas of injustice and violence and loss uh, for us to contemplate every moment of the day. And yet, God has done wonderful work of transformation uh, in this congregation through various outreach ministries, of which one we're going to talk about today, our Afghan refugee ministry. And since we have to give up the word, hallelujah, as Lent approaches, we retire that word. I'm glad we can say it today, because it really is the word that sums up uh, how so many of us feel about this work. Looking back to August of 2021, Kabul falls the government of Afghanistan falls, and thousands of people are thrust into a time of trauma, crisis, literally scrambling to leave the country, some only with the clothes on their backs and a few possessions they can grab to to get out. Uh, Over a a series of months, they make a journey through different parts of the world, through different uh, military bases and, and, and host countries that were helping shepherd them along the way to the United States, among other countries. And thousands of incoming evacuees, as you remember, were housed at military bases in Virginia and other places on the East Coast, wondering, even though they were now in a safe place, would they be in a place where they could build a new life, a life of of, the future for their children and a place where they could flourish. Meanwhile, at St. Columbus Church, a group of maybe a dozen or 15 people um, begin to meet in a circle to, to pray about this, to express alarm and concern about the events we're hearing about, and to try to build on the success that this parish had achieved in the last five years by working with another Afghan refugee family, asking, can we do it again? Do we have what it takes? Can we raise the funds? Do we have the resourceful people and the open-heartedness among us to do it again for a new family coming forward? Well, yes. Not one, not two, but three families um, made their way into our community and into our hearts and we, we look, at, look at one another sometimes and, and ask, how did we do it? Um, the reason is because of you. There are really three, three factors that have gone into making our Afghan refugee ministry one about which we can say, alleluia, today. Um, one is a, a generous congregation filled with the spirit, restless, looking for ways to express God's love in the world and ready to say yes and and take risks. Two, it's a team of volunteers. It begins with these folks up here, but by no means ends with them. A group of very resourceful, committed, compassionate people ready to to lend their gifts and energies in ways that can provide companionship and mentoring to, to, to the families that we sponsor. And three, a leader, a chairperson, it's true. It's true. Who's experience and knowledge and ability and compassion and contagious energy is, was the most important ingredient we needed to move this thing forward. And I am so proud and blessed to be, even though it's a small part of this, of this activity, it's a thrill to be able to talk to you about it today. And I then turn the microphone over to Carrie. I was talking about Kerry.
1: Good morning, it's so great to be with you here to um, share um, a a little bit about our our work this year. Um, I'm gonna introduce um, Gardell. He is the uh, chair of our finances. He makes sure that I don't give all the money away on any given day, And, um, and he's gonna, report on how we have been, I think, exceptional stewards of the money that this parish has provided us.
2: Hi, I'm Gardel Geffke. I am a finance chair in a sense. I really don't do that much other than say yes a lot to spending money. Uh, comparing our first family five years ago, we raised 50000 from the congregation. For this second set of families, we raised $50,000 from the congregation. In addition, through some in-kind gifts and some other specific gifts for particular needs, in total, we raised about $80,000 for each effort. Now, the first family had three kids. A lot of uh, driving was required because they weren't just all going to the same place, right? They went to three different schools and this and that. Also, there were some medical issues which were more severe, and so and and also we didn't have the pressure, so that initial hunk of money was basically consumed, really building this family's a very strong foundation, um, and they're very well set up set up now. So in the second set of families, we, were, or sec, we originally were only gonna do one family after the big uh, crisis in Afghanistan that re-inspired us to, we, were, we had been tired, you know. it took, took a lot of energy with that first family, but people, especially Carrie, got reinvigorated and, and here we all are with these great people. And so the second set of money, we had a much stricter budget, so to speak, in terms of supporting generously when they first arrived here for three months, and then gradually tapering it down. The State Department requires you to have like six months of support. We knew that wasn't gonna happen based on our previous experience, so we scheduled the money to stretch out over a year. And that's worked out pretty well, especially with Carrie being, she's not, she's pretty much a hammer in terms of making these, well no, you're you're trapped between wanting to be a, a paternalistic parent you know, I'm going to guide you with your money to realizing, no, these are adults, they had careers, professionals in Afghanistan, and they can figure out what to do with the money that is available to them. But we were much harder in terms of, or much uh, less flexible with, with, with their uh, quibbling with their in employment situations, shall we say. So, you know, they had to get a job, they had to get on track to make this uh, program work, and by whatever mercy, and along with, we did have some. Special circumstances like dental work. We spent a fortune on that, but luckily we Individuals had approached the committee uh, Carrie and David and you know wanted to that generosity that David was talking about wanted to give and so something like dental work or uh, Some training programs, you know that are going to be very critical to these families long term It sort of worked out and I'm every day I'm fingers crossed knocking on whatever pieces of wood I can uh, find because right now it looks like so April will be about a year after we got the three families and in spite of a uh, pregnancy and met other medical issues and um, people changing jobs when maybe ah we're the parent we don't want you to quit your job that's paying you money trying to do something else the families f- have found their way and all three seem to be very uh, well-footed going to the future. Our first family, uh, who had the, the, a child recently, a second child recently, uh, is moving to Richmond. They have a family support there and a much greater network. And so we're very, uh, and mercifully kind of, we got a free apartment for them, which is one of the reasons that we were able to then consider a second family. And the second family that we originally met had relatively good English skills, gave us a lot of confidence, and then they had a friend, and they'd both been in the Residence Inn after months and months and months, and they were going to lose their place. So we were like, uh, okay, we did it. And somehow it's, well, all these folks have done most of the work, getting them aid, getting them health care, getting visas, and everything that, you can't believe all the work that, that these folks have done. So we feel like we've done, a, you know, we got a three for one, so to speak, compared to our last experience, but that last experience really taught us all the pitfalls and and things that can go wrong and so we were psychologically much better prepared when those occurred so that's my story
1: thank you Gardell. um and i I just want to add to that that we've um really worked um uh, very hard to find good partners in the community and so with regard to the financial resources we were very fortunate that um, St. Mark's Episcopal Church, in particular, gave us close to $9,000, and that primarily went to dental costs that are not covered by Medicaid. And so, we would have had to really, you know, say, you know, you can't, we can't assist you until it becomes an emergency. So we were, the families were able to do much um, postponed dental work with, thanks to that um, donation. Um, as you can see there's a a, a slideshow of photos of the three families with many of our um, uh, Afghan families it kind of takes you from the move-in which a lot of people participated into helping them move into their new homes all the way to um, first you know welcome dinners and first days of school and uh, also um, some special outings to the National Zoo and monuments and fall festivals. All this was made possible by many parishioners who are not up here right now. People have responded and it's been an incredible Way that the parish has engaged with these families. The pictures take you. The, the last one shows one of our first family members who became a U.S. citizen at the end of last year, and we and a second family member, his father, became a U.S. citizen about a week ago. So that's very exciting to see that come um, completely like to fruition the volunteers that are here I've asked them to speak and they're part of the leadership team and they lead other volunteers as well I've asked them to speak about just how they and others use their special talents and gifts to assist these families because a lot of the work they do is not up here (laughs) these are the happy celebratory friends giving and lots of happy moments a lot of the like in-depth work goes on behind the scenes and we don't photograph that. So I'm gonna pass it off now to Alice Goodman and Shelly Geshen, and they are leading the employment efforts.
3: Thank you, Carrie. Um, We learned a lot from the first family, from the Quadras, and so we tried to use some of those lessons in um, handling these three families. Uh, to help them find employment which was the priority once they had housing and first thing we do is we sit down and meet with them and try to get to know them and figure out what are their strengths what what can they do what uh, how good is their english what other things do they need to get a job and once we've gone through that uh one of the the speed bumps that I had in doing this is that now all uh, employers use online applications. And for these folks, their personalities are really their selling point. Their, um, their uh, smiles, their friendliness, their eagerness to work. All of this is a selling point, and they can't use that in this kind of job world. It's very difficult. So I went back to the old-fashioned way, and through parishioners and friends, I would just go to local businesses and stop and talk to the manager or the owner and try to figure out you know, whether there would be a good fit if they had a, an opening. And some of those turned out to be very good partners. Uh, For one, Bandit Taco, which is right up the street from here, hired, uh, almost hired him on the spot, one of the guys. He had such a great personality. Um, Now Wegmans, on the other hand, they do online applications and their interviews are over the phone. And those don't go so well because if you're, that's not your first language, it's very difficult to have an interview over the phone when you can't see the person and you're not sure what they said and um, so that was kind of hard and then we, we so we went to all kinds of places around here stroesniders and other paint stores and the local UPS and um, little grocery stores and, and things like that and while uh, they find a job the first one may not be the right fit for them, and they're not gonna know that until they've spent some time there. So one of our first hires was at Silver Diner, and I encourage everyone to go there (laughs) because they've been wonderful. They uh, will train, um, they increased his hours, and now, as Gardell said, this family's moving to Richmond and there is a silver diner in Richmond, and they're willing to transfer him possibly to the restaurant there. And uh, he's someone who wants to get into a management track, and I think he would be a very good candidate for that. Um, Other ones that we um, uh, found, and some of these we found through the families themselves. Um, They brought to our attention Uh, a group called Emma's Torch, and they help people, uh, they put them through a culinary program, an eight week program where they pay them, and at the end they help them find a job. And one of the mothers went through this program, was the star of the program, and the first job she got wasn't the right fit, and then she went out and found her own job. So now she's working at um, uh, Moby Dick in Bethesda. And um, she likes that, and that works better for her because she has children and couldn't hold a full-time job. Um, the, uh, so I, I think that, and then uh, the second gentleman who was working at Silver Diner also went through, is going through this training program, and that will make him a much more valuable employee to Silver Diner, so we have high hopes for him. So all of these things, they don't, it doesn't always work out the first time and then you just have to go back and do it again. And um, and they find their own way. They have their own uh, contacts that they meet, other Afghans, and that's where they find how to get a used car and how to, you know, other kinds of um, jobs. So now two of their fathers are driving um, uh, DoorDash and they find that that is a much more flexible kind of a job for them so it's um, you know it's a work in progress and uh, it took all of us to do it it's not just we just don't do each one of us don't do our little silo because the health thing affects the employment and the job affects whether they can get to the doctor and all that so it's a group effort thank you
4: Good morning. I'm Shelley Geshen, and thank you guys for what you've said so far. Um, I mostly worked on employment for family number two, which was the Beceri family. And I've learned so much from this experience, because I really thought, okay, um, the dad had 13 years of IT experience for uh, Voice of America, and okay, he'll be a cinch. And his wife taught complicated database programs for the university. He has a master's degree and speaks four languages. Um, she has a bachelor's degree, and I don't know how many languages she can speak, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Um, and when they came, they already he already had a resume. She had a CV that was about 12 pages long. So, The main things that I could do for him, because we started with him, was polish up his resume, make it more into accomplishments rather than responsibilities because it was kind of boring to read and didn't show what he had brought to the job. Um, Practice interviewing. He hadn't had an interview since he was 22 years old. He worked for the same company all that time. And it's also interviewing in another language, in another culture. Um, And then of course we developed a strategy. And I thought, well, I mean, with all of these people that I work with, I say we have to have a short-term strategy and a long-term strategy. Because I can just put myself, I try to put myself in their position. If I were doing what I have done, I mean, I had a master's degree, I had a lot of experience in a couple different fields, and I was uprooted and went to another country, it would be really hard for me to become a cashier or to work in a clothing store where I, I hate all the clothes and have no interest whatsoever in whether people buy them. It, just, it would be really, really hard. It would be hard to like bust tables. Um, so I actually was trying to like empathize with where they were. Um, Ann Romick, who is our communications person, put a notice in one of the weekly bulletins about the fact that we had a person with IT experience and what leads did people have, and they were great. The parish responded so well. And I don't know, eight or 10 different people got his resume, looked at every opening in their company, sent them to other people, um, and nothing came of it. Mostly because Abdul's a generalist, and most of the positions in America are specialists in IT. And so, and also his certifications are a year old, but I don't honestly think that was the problem. Um, but, so I, I, I guess my thoughts are that it's, it's, it's really, our experience with all four families has been that it's almost impossible for them to start working in their previous fields. We really thought they would, but, um, you know, I used to do this thing when, I t- when there were still cabs and not Uber. Um, I would ask the cab driver where they were from and what they had done in their own country. And after a while, I stopped doing it because it was too depressing. They would say, well, I was an attorney or I was a judge or I was a physician or I was a something. And now they're driving cabs and they're happy about that. They're safe. Their their families are safe, everybody's in in a school, they feel good about it, and yet they there's so much wasted talent in this country. Would, people doing something that they that they have all these skills and experience that they can't use here. Um, English fluency is still a factor. I think with our with many people, their verbal skills are really quite good. Their written skills, maybe not so much. Um, they're, they usually can read quite well, um, and, and that reading is the easiest, speaking is the next, and writing is the worst. And so, I, I, none of them ever wrote cover letters. I wrote all the cover letters. Alice and I together did the online applications. But that means that what we wanna do is position them to succeed, and would they really succeed in a job in which they had to like, write regular reports about IT usage and stuff? I'm not sure. Um, also, the way people get jobs in this country is not from online applications. That's generally a big black hole that you throw things in. You get jobs by talking to people and by sort of circling around closer and closer to your um, to your objectives. Um, one person knows you're there, and then some, they hear there's an opening and they recommend you or they tell you to apply. That's how it works. Try teaching networking to people who speak four languages but not yours so well, and they're introverts and they're unsure of what it's like here. I I set up a couple for Abdul and he missed both of them and he really just, I think, it's hard for them to say no to us. They they should say no, I'm not comfortable doing that, but they don't. They don't want to disappoint us, they just don't do it. <laughs> so so you know it takes six to 12 months to get a professional job and they needed to work immediately so that so that's why i kept talking about long term and short term so we're in this for the long term we'll keep helping them just like we keep helping the uh, kawajas who are who've been here five years Um, the other issue is when employers that when they want to when they say in their cover letters i'm willing to start at the beginning and move up the employers just think they're overqualified and won't interview them because they figure as soon as they find something better they'll leave. So all that said, the thing that I conclude is that these families are remarkable. They're, you know, what you need to get a family started is, you know, the five pillars. You need an apartment, you need to get the kids in school or in childcare. you need to get them enrolled in benefits, you need employment, and you need the backlog of health and medical needs all the health needs met. And the employment is, is there. They have figured it out themselves for the most part. Abdul and Bakhtaj both got loans from some someone they know who's the Afghani, to, so they bought cars and that's how they're driving. They like the independence of it, and I don't think they're making tons of money, but they're keeping every, everything afloat, and more power to them. They haven't had a single... Um, I asked Abdul, is there anything we could have done better to help you, and um, what worked and what didn't. And he basically thought the whole thing was great, even though we didn't find him an IT job. So they're, they're, they're really happy here, and I'm so proud of them. And I'm also really proud of this team and all of our partners who helped. Good morning.
5: Um, the Connie's arrived in, Mar- in late March, as you know, and Najiba was two months pregnant. With her second child. She faced challenges during her pregnancy, but throughout she was positive and upbeat. Our journey began, Najiba's and mine, when I started taking her to her prenatal appointments. Uh, I've learned in our drives back and forth about uh, the family, their life in Kabul, how they left Afghanistan, and mostly how much Najiba missed her mother, but thanks to the incredible uh, technology, she FaceTimes every day with her mother and other family members. And technology also helped us during our drives. There would be words that I couldn't figure out how to explain to her. So when she asked me once, what was the doctor wearing on his head? I had to tell her to look up the word yamaka because she had no idea what it was. And as you can imagine, that led to a very interesting discussion. <laughs> Najiba's prenatal appointments all took place at the Mary's Center, which if you're not familiar with it, is not far, it's, it's near here. It's not far from the intersection of North Capitol and Missouri Avenue. It provided her very impressive care even when her, pre- her pregnancy progressed, uh, we, they, could get a Dari translator within five minutes, and he or she, mostly he, uh, would do the translating, this mysterious voice coming through the computer. I felt a little awkward uh, when we had all these men and we began discussing with the doctor, Najiba, her, female body parts, but somehow uh, it went pretty smoothly. Um, If you're not familiar with the Mary Center, it's a community health provider serving over 65,000 patients of all ages, incomes, backgrounds, and has operated in the D.C. area for over 30 years. Now, the the high point of this pregnancy, of course, was on November 15th. Najiba had an appointment at the Washington Hospital Center uh, to be induced to deliver her baby. After 24 long hours of great pain for Najiba, uh, Malwadad and I tried to support her as much as possible, but the doctors decided uh, to deliver the baby by C-section. Minutes after his birth, I get very emotional, I held a nine-pound, three-ounce baby boy, Supan. I don't think she could have delivered him any other way. And it was an incredible, life-affirming experience for me. And uh, I've been certainly very grateful for this time to get to know the Connies, and also all the amazing volunteers as we've supported these three families as they settled here.
1: I'm just, Sharon, I'm just going to interrupt for a second and say, and they were incredibly (laughs) thankful to have Christina with them throughout, and so were all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Sharon.
6: I think we've all become grandparents (laughs) 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 on this committee. (laughs) Um, April 23rd, 2022, was the day the Basseri family moved into their Silver Spring apartment. I was there helping when I happened to overhear Abdul, the dad, mentioned to Carrie, by the way, Carrie, don't forget, please, that Omrah, his four-year-old daughter, needs new ear molds for her hearing aids. So I kind of perked up overhearing that because I'm retired now, but I am a, I had a lifelong career in speech pathology and audiology. So... Uh, The spirit was there, right? I I mentioned to Carrie as I left, by the way, if you need any help with those ear molds, I could be here for you. Well, in true form, Carrie, who was juggling a million things that day, didn't forget that I had said that. (laughs) And within 24 hours, I think I had a Zoom link to join three people on the medical team to discuss ear molds, I thought. But by the end of the Zoom meeting, I found myself in charge of four children under the age of six at the time for all of their medical needs and all of their dental needs. That was two from the Basseri family and two from the Amini family. And that was a lot more than just two ear molds. But I dove in and soon found out Hassanat Baseri needed she had tonsils so gigantic that they almost blocked her airway and needed quick surgery with a tonsillectomy. And then Hasanat and Marwa both had vision problems and they needed glasses. And then all four children had massive, such massive dental problems on their little baby teeth that their treatment could only be done under general anesthesia, which had never happened in my family before. So um, we did all of that, took care of all of that. I'm happy to say all their little mouths are now healthy and that they only have to go back to Smile Land every six months for their cleanings. But, not, but that didn't include Omra yet, and she had special needs with her moderate hearing loss. So we ended up at the Children's Hospital uh, Speech and Hearing Department for, uh, in June, I think, Uh, for her ear molds. Like a typical little girl, she picked out the pink ones with the glitter and was pretty excited about them. But at the same time, the department tested her hearing and realized that she qualified for two new hearing aids as well. We waited most of the summer for those hearing aids to come, but they did arrive just in time for school to start at Rosemary Hills, and she marched in with a gigantic smile on her face and two pink glittery ear molds in her ears. The Rosemary Hill School has been incredible, helping to plan lots of accommodations for in the classroom, as well as uh, special help with her speech, her hearing, and her language development. The teacher wears an FM system so that her voice is directly transmitted to OMRA's hearing aids. So like you were saying, technology is incredible. Um, Carolyn and I, who's going to tell you more about education, is a retired school principal, and that combined with my background, uh, we've been invited to be on Team OMRA at Rosemary Hills. So we actually help develop her educational plan. Um, All that was going super well and then we hit a little blip with Omrah's hearing. A follow-up appointment with the audiologist showed she was developing fluid in her ears. So we waited a month and rechecked her and it wasn't any better. So we were back to the ENT department where they did the surgical placement of tubes, like many of us have had in our children. And that was the trick. They've, they've been fantastic. She is now infection free. Her hearing aids are working at their maximal best. And um, according to Rosemary Hill, she's a delightful student who learns well and is speaking well and is just, they're thrilled with her. So, all that said, I would like to say I am happy to report that the Bassini and Amini children, Baseri and Amini children, all seem to be thriving in their new country. They're healthy, they're happy, they're learning English faster than their parents, they're doing well in their schools. And for me, I do feel kind of like a grandmother. I love it. (laughs) Added four grandchildren and have been part of this amazing team that is just such an honor to work with and to think how much we have helped this family, who have been so brave, I think, in coming here and working with us.
7: Okay, All right, I see Carrie looking at her watch, so I'm going to speed this up. But sitting here among these ministry members, I'm reminded of lines from Romans that, in Stirring the Waters last week, we reflected on uh, Paul said to his people, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the other. We all have different gifts, and I think you've seen that here today. As a retired educator, I had the good fortune of facilitating the enrollment of uh, the children of the Basari and Amini families in Rosemary Hills. It's the neighborhood school in Silver Spring, which is in walking distance to their their homes, their apartments. And I'm so thankful that the girls have really uh, benefited from small group instruction, English lessons, and uh, meeting friends from all over the world. And a testament to this sweet spot where they landed is that one of the girls, upon completing her first day of school, said, this was the best day of my life. The girls qualified for summer school in July, and in August, I reached out to the director of the Kids After Hours uh, after school and summer program, uh, someone that I had known when I worked as a principal, and I asked him if there were scholarships available for these three girls. He said to me, "No." And as you can imagine, my heart sunk. But then he responded, they will come as my guests. So that worked out really nicely last year with volunteers who were willing to drive them back and forth. This year, trying my luck again, I reached out. And Carrie had said we'd really like them to be in camp for three weeks of August. So I said to them, Three kids, three weeks, you know, what can you do for me? And he said again, they will be my guests. So that is a $3,000 gift to our program, which is really great. And meanwhile, our own St. Columbus Nursery School provided a full scholarship for Suleiman, the son of the Kahanis. And additionally, English Now, which is an organization in Bethesda, provided semi-intensive English language instruction for three of our Afghan adults at a very subsidized rate. And as you can imagine, that has really helped in the employment uh, search. And I just wanted to say one other thing. Uh, When I was reflecting on this, According to a UNESCO report, as recent as this January, 80% of school-aged Afghan girls and young women, which is 2.5 million people, are out of school. Nearly 30% of Afghan girls have never entered primary education. I do not know what the educational opportunities would be, would have been, for our girls in their home country. But it fills my heart with pride to know that they have been given a first-class education here in our country.
1: Thank you all. Um, I just want to... hope what you hear and what they're saying is how this parish has a lot of gifted people who reach out and really in, in very direct ways live God's love. And they're, and they're doing it um, to benefit these families and in a sense many others. We also have been really blessed by um, their efforts and others' efforts. Many people you'll never hear about who use their networks and their partners to help us assist these families with legal problems, getting asylum, getting visas. It's really been um, remarkable. Um, Cami, do you want to open? We can open up for a few questions. Do we have time? Are there? Out. I think we have
3: time for just a couple questions here. And if you wouldn't mind coming over to the stand.
1: There are no specific questions. I could do one more thing. Can I have people who have volunteered, just that are out there in the audience, can you please stand? Because there are many of you. Um, there's so many of you that have helped. I mean, I just want people to know there's many people who support this work. Um, I, I also wanna say, the big question I would be asking is, what's next? Um, and because I'm gonna keep a moving and um, no it it is it is sad to acknowledge that the refugee crisis is not going away we know there are refugees coming continue to come from Afghanistan we now um, have um, migrants seeking asylum who are coming from our southern border there's really just um, we get we get almost daily um, Emails and asks from the diocese and beyond um, John Nolan and Cami and Courtney Hundley have been meeting um, particularly about the migrant situation and um, we're going to be uh, beginning to present opportunities to um, join a community engagement group that can can assist with that um, we're going to continue and and begin, because the families we're now sponsoring, we really feel like we've we've come close to accomplishing our mission. Our mission is always to welcome them, to ensure that they um, become self-sufficient and independent. And they're really pretty much there. Um, and so we're starting to look at, will we sponsor other families? Will what will we do next? And and we do our very best to keep the parish informed through forums like this, through the E-news, through our listserv. So I hope, um, you know, we're incredibly grateful for the opportunity and many others to do this work because it really, I, I can only speak for myself, but I think they'll agree, it really stre- strengthens the bonds of friendship And fellowship also within the parish Um, we all know each other now really well and we spend time together and we celebrate together and and that is a another aspect of the work so um, thank you all for being here if anybody else has anything else to share um, I think that's a wrap and thank you thank you for your generosity it makes it all possible